Well, good morning. Today's passage is Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, a rather familiar passage to many of us. But in these verses, Paul challenges us to think properly and then act properly. And the progression is important because what we think really determines and informs how we act. This is what Paul says. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so this passage challenges us to conform our patterns and our habits of thinking and acting to the will of God. And this will necessarily involve confronting the flesh. And the flesh is that part of us, it's that immaterial part of us that craves sin. It's that part of us that will never submit to the will of God. And the flesh is like the ruts in an old dirt country road, okay? The trucks and the tractors run down that road year after year, and there's these deep ruts. And so when you get on that, that road, the easiest, the most natural thing is just to put your tires in those ruts and follow the road wherever it takes you. A similar thing happens in our minds. If over the years, uh, our minds are not renewed and conformed to the image of Christ, over the years, we have these ruts in our minds that are at odds with the will of God. And we get in a situation and the most, the, the easiest, most natural thing to do is to just go down those same ruts, go down the same path in our thinking. And so the ruts in your mind may take you down the path of anger or bitterness or anxiety or jealousy or judgmentalism or despair or sensuality or a hundred other sub-Christian patterns of thought. I need to warn you up front that if you seek to change your habits of thought, it will uh, likely be the most difficult thing you have ever done. It will be the most difficult thing you've ever done. Uh, the habits of the flesh have been likened to a, a wolverine, the animal, not the, the Marvel Comics character. And so here you have, if there's any small children here, I hope this doesn't scare you, but, but uh, it's called the honey badger of the north, right? Uh, 35 pounds, it can take down a moose or a bear or all these, these, these big games. I mean, it's, its teeth and its claws are lethal. If you challenge your flesh, if you try to get in the presence of God and you say, God, I want to renew my mind, I want to submit the meditations of my heart to you, uh, like a wolverine, your flesh will bare its teeth and it will flash its claws. It will be ferocious. It will be tenacious. Your flesh will try to convince you that you should just give up before you begin. You know it's not going to work after all. I mean, how are you going to be successful this time? You're not going to be able to, to have a renewed mind, so just quit before you begin. 
The flesh is going to tell you, as a matter of fact, you should wait till tomorrow or next week or, or next year. You have far too many urgent things to do. You can't sit in the presence of God and marinate your mind on Scripture. Uh, it's just, yeah, you're too busy. You, there are too many urgent things to do that. And the flesh will remind you that you're, you're actually one of, the, one of the more spiritual people that you know. And so what is the big deal to having one or two or three areas of your mind that are not submitted to God? It's, it's really not that. Don't get fanatical about this. Whatever you do, don't get fanatical. And so your flesh will tell you all these things. The flesh will not give up without a fight. And so I mention all these things just, just to... State very clearly that you and I have a 0% chance of submitting our minds to God and having a renewed mind on our own strength, independent of God. 0% chance. My, my point here is that we have to be desperate for God to do this work in our minds. The good news is he's very willing and very able. We saw it in Philippians 2 and earlier. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so this is your effort to manifest your, your, your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is already at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's given you the desire. He's given you the power to do what pleases him. And so I would invite you to approach this passage with me with zero confidence in yourself and great confidence in the power of God and the willingness of God to do this work. And so in verse 8, Paul says, dwell on the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And we'll spend most of our time on, on verse 8. And uh, look at verse 9 briefly. But again, look at the, verse, at the end of verse 8. He lists all these virtues, and then Paul says, dwell on these things. Think rightly about these things. And so certain things that are appropriate, certain things that are inappropriate, certain things that are profitable, unprofitable. And before we discuss this verse in detail, I want to I kind of give a, a broad overview of what the, how the Bible thinks about the, the thought life of a believer, okay? Unless we really understand this larger context of how the Bible talks about our thought lives, we'll probably miss uh, what's at stake in this passage we're going to look at. Now, I think we'll all say, yeah, this is good. This, this, is, this is obviously good, but somewhat trivial, maybe inconsequential. Uh, I think we're going to see that nothing could be further from the truth. And so consider these three perspectives, kind of a biblical perspective of our thought life. So this is not exhaustive, but these are three key points from both the Old and the New Testament. And the first is simply that God knows every thought of my heart. Fact, God knows every thought of my mind and my heart. Passages such as Psalm 139, uh, David makes this point. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, O Lord, you know it. And so this is a statement about the personal omniscience of God. Uh, God has exhaustive knowledge, exhaustive knowledge of every thought I think, of everything I say, of every act that I do. 
And so it's not merely that God knows everything. That's true. God, if you want to put in these terms, he has a database that has every bit of data everywhere. But that's not really what David is saying. He's saying God has this exhaustive knowledge of me, of my thought. God is listening in on every thought that I think. And of course, our words, Jesus said our words speak from that which fills the heart. So before our words are spoken, he knows what's in our heart and what will, what will be said. And so God notices when I think kind, gracious, compassionate thoughts, and he notices when I think arrogant, judgmental, and hateful thoughts. Uh, Hebrews 4 tells us that all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God. With you and with me before God, there are no secrets, not a single one. We can keep secrets from each other sometimes, but there are no secrets before God. Now, is that good news or bad news? Well, it depends on the character of God, right? If God is this vengeful, vengeful, spiteful God who's kind of hiding in the shadows just waiting for you to mess up, this is bad news, okay? But if he's the God of the Bible, he's slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. If God is like the, the father in the parable of the prodigal son, then we can have hope because this is a God who is willing and able to give us the mind of Christ, to refine us in our thinking. And so God knows every thought of my heart. Second, God expects me to love him with every thought of my heart. Deuteronomy 6 expresses what God loves, what God expects of his people in every generation. Sometimes it's called the Shema. The first word for listen or hear is Shema. And Moses gave this command to the children of Israel before they entered the land. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so we probably shouldn't see a hard and fast distinction between these three things. Your heart is one thing, your soul is one thing, your might is something. Probably should be taken together in the sense of God is saying, you should love God with everything you are and with everything you have. You really cannot overstate how comprehensively God wants us to love him. He wants us to love him with in, in, in a comprehensive way. And of course, our love for him only mirrors his love for us. God loves us with all his heart and soul and might. God loves us with every fiber of his being. He proved it at the cross, right? We were yet sinners. He died for us. Uh, God loved us so much he gave his one and only son so that we might not perish but have eternal life. Interestingly, when Mark records Jesus' restatement of this command in Mark 12, 30, he includes the mention of loving God with our minds. And this suggests that, uh, that Deuteronomy 6 included loving God with our minds all along. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so clearly God expects us to love him with the thoughts of our mind. Therefore, if God knows our thoughts, he expects us to love him with our every thought. Therefore, third, I should make it my ambition to love him with my every thought. This should be our aspiration. Uh, this was David's aspiration in Psalm 19, 14. He says, let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart, okay? He wasn't just concerned about the external. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so David was able to say, God, I am accountable to you, not just for what I say, but also for the things that I ponder deep in my heart uh, throughout the day. I'm accountable to you for that. And I will just, uh, just be honest with you, until relatively recently, I'm not sure I believe that this was a live option for me, okay? I know I'm supposed to have good thoughts. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to sin in my think thinking. But honestly, I think, okay, my speech, I know how to work on that. My actions, okay, I sort of know how to work on that. But my, my thoughts, the meditation of my heart... It's just too wild. It's just too untamed. It's just so out of control. Is it even a live option for the meditations of my heart to be pleasing in God's sight? But then I started coming across some of these scriptures that we're looking at here today, and it's like it's everywhere. It's obvious. God is the God who sees. He's the God who knows. He's the God who wants us to love him, not part-time or not just love him as one of many gods. He wants our, our complete life, our complete mind, our complete heart. And so I would just say to you, this is where I've land. Eventually, you and I, we need to grow up and we need to own our thought life. And we need to say, okay, a lot of things have gotten me where I am. Uh, the family I grew up in, obviously, that, that influenced my, my thought life, my thinking. The things that have happened to me, both the good things and the bad things, they've affected my, my thought life and the patterns of my thinking. Uh, my God-given temperament, you know, there's, I'm, I'm different than other people. We're, we're not all the same. That's affected the way I think. Yes, those are true, but eventually we need to say, but, but still, God expects me to be responsible, meaning I'm able to respond. I am responsible for the deep structures of thought in my mind and in my heart. And so that's where we all need to be. And by God's grace, even the meditations of my heart can be pleasing to him. What I find so encouraging and so empowering is this, this over and over, I've seen it experientially, you see it throughout Scripture, that God can be trusted to expose and refine the meditations of the heart. David sure thought so. At the end of Psalm 139, he prayed this. And this is a model prayer for every, every believer, every follower of Christ. Again, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. It really means expose these things to me. I want to understand this. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And so David, David, he knew God knew him exhaustively. And so at the end of the psalm, he says, God, so I just show me what, what's really true in my life. Show me what my thoughts are really about. And if there's anything hurtful, if there's anything that doesn't conform to the will of God, expose it to me, God, and then lead me in the paths of righteousness. He says the everlasting way. The Old Testament talks about the ancient paths. There are certain ways of thinking and act acting that are, that are ancient. They are time-tested. They are proven. They lead to life and not to death. And so uh, that's kind of the context of our thought life. With that in mind, 
Uh, Paul says this in Philippians 4.8. Listen again to what he says. And now we read this and we like, we're like, of course, absolutely. How can we pursue anything else? Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Yes, of course, the things we dwell on in our hearts and our minds, they should be the things that conform to the will of God. We should ponder them. We should mull them over throughout the day. And so Paul lists uh, six adjectives, and then he lists two nouns. I put seven in your bulletin just to see if you're paying attention. But uh, there's six and two. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know what happened. I miscounted on Thursday. But uh, he lists these things. And these are the, the virtues should, should, that should dominate our thinking. And significantly, scholars tell us that these lists of virtues, uh, they were common in the moral philosophy of the day. The Stoics, for example, they used the same basic list of virtues. And so what Paul lists here are not uh, exclusively Christian virtues. Of course, we should excel in those things. So something like humility... Uh, yeah, nobody but Christians thought humility was, was a virtue. Uh, it was seen as a weakness in the Greek world. Or this radical forgiveness, forgiving people seven times 70, that was irresponsible in, in the, the first century. So th those were distinctively Christian. But the things Paul mentions here, they were widely respected and widely held in the, uh, outside of the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying that Christians should excel in the virtues that were already valued in their society, okay? And so without accepting all the presuppositions of those who taught these virtues, without allowing the culture to set your morality, Paul says, excel in these things. They're not only godly. He's, he's saying, I think, that these are a bridge to those outside the body of Christ. They were living in a society that maligned Christians. They were suspicious of Christians. And so these virtues would have gotten the attention and they possibly would have opened doors for the gospel to those who didn't know Christ. And I would say something very similar is true in our day. There's plenty about Christianity that, that many people really don't respect. But we have so much in common, so many virtues, these ones we're going to talk about in a few minutes, so many in common with broadly with people in our day. And, and these virtues, we should excel in these virtues. Uh, I'll just give another, an example. It's not on the list, but honesty. Almost everybody I know, they would say, yeah, I respect honest people. And so if you're doing work for somebody, if you're a carpenter or an engineer or a physician or an accountant or you're doing landscaping and, and uh, you're doing some work for somebody and you make a mistake, okay, you break something, you miscalculate something, so you, you make a mistake uh, and nobody notices but you, and instead of ignoring it, if you come back and you say, hey, I made a mistake, I want to make it right at no cost to you. That will build a bridge. People will respect you for that. And so the virtues that Paul lists here are widely accepted in our day. And if these virtues are not embedded in our thought life, 
and therefore don't manifest themselves in the words we say and the, the, the way we act, then we really should not be too surprised if others don't take our, our witness seriously. Yeah, if they don't respect the things they can see, how are they going to be interested in the things they can't see about our faith? And so Paul challenges, uh, challenges us to uh, dwell on these virtues. And we're, I'm going to illustrate, illustrate them as we go along. And so they're in your bulletin there as well. He says, first of all, dwell on whatever is true. That means it aligns with reality. Uh, it's not false. Uh, last week, Logan talked about anxiety. And he pointed out that one of the reasons we get anxious is because we believe lies. We believe things that are not true. So we believe it is my responsibility to control this situation, or it is my responsibility to uh, fix these, these problems around me, or guarantee that I'm going to have a certain outcome. Well, that is not the truth. That is not the reality. We're in control of very little. The truth is we have a God who is faithful. And so the truth is God is God and I'm not. Therefore, I can entrust my circumstances to him. Whatever's true, dwell on that. He says, whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of honor or respect. And so here's the idea. If somebody, this is a scary thought, but if somebody could listen to your thoughts, okay? Somebody could listen to your thoughts, they're going to be so impressed that they would honor you. They would respect you more for, the, for what you're thinking, okay? God here's your thoughts, but, but even before other people. And so let's say that someone has insulted you. Uh, nobody's going to respect you if they read your mind and they hear you murdering that person over and over in your mind, hateful, vengeful, just nasty, sarcastic thoughts about that person. No respect. But if they hear you thinking, I wonder if there's something I did that provoked that person. Do I have a part in this? Or if they hear you wondering, I wonder if that person is fighting some battle that has made them so edgy and so prone to, to be provoked. They would say, wow, I respect that. That's, that's honorable. I honor that. He says, whatever is right. And so it's just or it's right in the broadest sense. What if we, what if this were, were the, if, if what is right, what is just dominated our thinking when we watch the news, okay, or listen to the news? Uh, we tend to, to think only in political terms, and when we do that, when we listen to the news and we hear the, the debates that are going on, uh, I'm, I'm just, maybe I'm projecting on you here, but we tend to think, I want my side to look good, and I want the other side to be shamed and look horrible. I want us to win. I want them. I want them to lose, whether you're on the right or the left. That's the way you tend to think. But what if we don't use those categories? What if we say, from God's perspective, what is right? What is justice here? We may find that our hearts go out to people that we have never even considered. We may find that we, that we pay attention to uh, the least of these in a way that we never, ever have before. It may be that evil pe even people that we consider our political opponents, uh, we view them with compassion and we understand uh, more where they're coming from. And so it could actually change uh, the way we, we soak in the things that happen around us. 
It says, whatever is pure, sometimes that word is translated holy, set apart for specific purposes. And this virtue includes, it's not limited to, but it includes uh, sexual purity. And so purity of thought means that we refuse to objectify other people. If you refuse to look at people and view people as objects for our own gratification. And so uh, uh, holiness means we understand why they were created. And so we as believers in Jesus uh, should understand above all people that male and female are created in God's image. The truth is, is that we are to image God. You want to know what God's like? Look at them. You know what God's like, male and female? Look at them and you'll understand more about God. And so that could change the way that, the way that we uh, think about purity. Uh, pure thoughts uh, involve looking for the image of God and encouraging the image of God in others. He says, whatever is lovely, and I, this, this one is the most fascinating to me. Uh, something is lovely, it inspires the love of other people. It's not distasteful. And so uh, think about when we're suffering, how we have this unique opportunity to demonstrate what is lovely, to think in a way that if people noticed, they would say, I love that. I absolutely love the way you're thinking. And so if you're, you're suffering uh, medically or physically, maybe you're suffering, suffering relationally or emotionally in some way, uh, what if your thoughts were the type of thoughts that others would love? And one of the places we can go are the, the, the lament psalms. Uh, there's dozens of them, Psalm 3, Psalm 44. Uh, these psalms are very honest, they're very raw in places, but they're also full of faith and full of hope. And we know that God loves those patterns of thought because they're urged in Scripture. And so the lament psalms allow us to pour out our heart to God and say, God, I'm in a covenant relationship with you. You have to come through for me. I'm dying down here. But you've proven that you're faithful. And so I trust you. I will see your salvation here or there, but I will see your salvation. And so if, if, those, if that dominates our thinking in the midst of our suffering, uh, people will notice. It will come in the way, it will show up in the way we speak the way we talk with others. Finally, Paul mentions whatever is of good repute. That means that it's worthy of others' approval. It's very similar to uh, whatever is honorable. And so instead of illustrating it, I just want to give a perspective that uh, on patterns of thought that are worthy of others' approval. Uh, first and foremost, what's mat what matters is that God approves of the way we think. And we are never going to have... In a, in a comprehensive, broad sense, we're never going to have uh, thoughts that are approved by God unless we just saturate, marinate our minds in the scriptures. It's, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and so um, read God's word, meditate on God's word, medicate your habit. Read the Sermon on the Mount, for example, to see how God thinks about anger, lust, retaliation, revenge, the poor, prayer, fasting. If you can lay your head on the pillow at night with this, just this basic sense, God, I've done it imperfectly, but I believe that my thoughts have been, they're approved in your sight, then you will sleep well. You will sleep well at night. 
And so Paul says, dwell on these things. And then he gives two nouns at the end that really summarize. He says, if there's any excellence, if it displays moral excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, if there are thoughts that elicit the praise, the admiration of other people. And again, Paul has in mind, think in such a way so that if other people know what you're thinking, they will praise you. Paul said, if there's, there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These virtues are supposed to characterize our patterns of thought. And this can happen no matter what you're doing. So it's not like you need to quit your job, leave your family, and go sit by yourself somewhere and think these things. No, it's as you're living your life, these are the patterns of, of thought. And if you're like me, many times you don't pay attention to what you're thinking. You just think. Your thoughts just happen to you. I can remember a couple years ago, I was uh, out in my wood shop, which is, that's my happy place. That's where I do happy things. That's where I'm supposed to be happy. And I realized I'm out here, and I'm not enjoying this at all. I am stewing in my mind. I'm stewing over a situation that happened the week before. And I am, am miserable in my happy place because I inadvertently brought my mind with me. And so I need to see that. I need to know that. Okay, I have these hurtful, anxious thoughts. And so that's the place to begin. Okay, now I can begin. I repent from those things. I turn from those things. Uh, if, if I had this passage in mind in my shop that day, I would have nobody would have concluded that uh, nobody would have said, okay, I honor, approve, I find that lovely. So again, we pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. This is a, thing, this is a prayer to pray every day, maybe several times a day. We pray it, and then we walk out into our day with anticipation. God, Show me, reveal to me my anxious thoughts, and show me the, the ways that are everlasting, the ways that give life. Dwell on things that are excellent and worthy of praise. In verse 9, he says, practice the things you've learned and received from godly people. And Paul is able to say, uh, I want you to basically imitate me. He says, you've seen it, you've learned it, you've received it. And this would include the virtues that he just mentioned in verse 8. He says in verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so the Philippians had learned and received things from Paul. That was because they were teachable. They were receptive to the gospel and to the, the ways of discipleship. The Philippians had heard and seen things in Paul. And so he hadn't just given them these vague spiritual ideas. They had seen in his life what it looks like to live it out. They had this, this example. And Paul says, practice these things. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. And so by practicing these things, we become mature. And so what Paul is describing here should be the norm in the Christian life. And so this should happen in the Christian home, of course. Uh, kids should, uh, should, should learn and receive, hear and see 
the ways of Christ lived out. But that's never done perfectly, and and so kids should also see it in the broader body of Christ. But it's not just for kids. As we grow up, we all need people who are a few steps ahead of us that can serve as mentors and examples for us so that we see and we hear uh, how we should live our lives. People who can both narrate and demonstrate how to walk with Christ. And so let me just, just reiterate that if you want to be an example to other people, an example that people can learn from and receive from, hear from, imitate. It starts in the mind. You have to dwell on these things. What we do, what we say flows from what we think. And uh, somebody's watching your life. Somebody is watching your life. And uh, you have the opportunity to demonstrate what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And the promise to those who practice these things is that the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, he said, the peace of God will be with you. Here he says, the God of peace. And I love that designation for God. He is the God of peace. God doesn't have an anxious bone in his body. Well, he doesn't have a body, but uh, God is anxious in no way. God is at perfect peace. God gives us peace with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God gives us this peace internally through the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit involves peace. And we have peace with one another as we walk in the Spirit and as we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. The God of peace will be with you. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this, this amazing vision of what our lives can and should be. We thank you, God, for this, this challenge to dwell on the things that, uh, that are consistent with your will, the things that are life-giving to us and to everybody that we meet. And God, the, the uh, charge to imitate those who have walked, walked the walk before us. God, we, we despair of our own ability. We have no ability to pull this off in our own strength. And so, God, we are desperate for you to teach us. We are desperate for you to empower us. And so we look to you. God, this week we pray that you would, would uh, search us and know our heart, try us and know our anxious thoughts. Show us if there's anything hurtful in the way we, we think or, or our motives or our behavior and lead us in the everlasting way. God, may we be encouragement to one another as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.